Hey, Tom. I'm heading to Walmart, because you know what season it is. Oh, is it pumpkin spice season? Uh, no, it's flu season, and Walmart gives flu shots. Yes, flu season is here, and we've got your back. With flu shots where you already shop, our expert pharmacy team administers each flu shot and can answer your vaccine questions. Stay safe this flu season. Stop by your local Walmart pharmacy and get your flu shot today. Hate crimes are dangerous and insidious, but you have the power to help stop them. If you witness or experience a hate crime, a criminal offense motivated by race, religion, disability, sexual orientation, or other characteristics, you can report it to the FBI, who is committed to protecting communities and supporting victims. Submit a tip at 800-CALL-FBI or tips.fbi.gov. The FBI is here to help. Protecting our communities together. Report hate crimes. Thirty-year-old Anna Maria Cordina Leva was a single mother of three, working at a food processing plant in Montreal. When she met a traveling salesman at the plant offices in the city's east end. On June 19, 1992, the man asked her out on a date. Cordina Leva left her three children in the charge of her brother, then departed her Verdun apartment. Before leaving, she wrote the name and phone number of the traveling salesman on a piece of paper. Serge Archambault. Anna Maria disappeared that evening. Montreal Urban Community Police investigators questioned Archambault about the disappearance, but they concluded Archambault had never seen Cordina Leva on the evening in question. Serge Archambault, Quebec's first serial killer. This is who killed Teresa. Um, we are going to talk today about Quebec serial killers, and um, I'm, I'm I'm a little surprised I haven't asked myself the question earlier: who were, who are uh, currently known as Quebec serial killers? It, it seems like a um, a logical thing to ask after. Cataloging a, a litany of cold cases without um, uh, any offenders, um, and I put this question uh, a couple of months ago to a criminologist uh, source that I, I I lean on. It's it's no one you know, uh, so it's not Sasha Reed. I didn't ask uh, Kim Rosmo or anyone like that because I do. I have other people, other sources. That I go to for things, uh, and I don't tell you who they are, because um, the last thing I need is for you to start nagging them with your questions, and then you monopolize all their time. 
like some of you have done with Sasha Reed, and then I don't get any exclusivity with the matters that I'm concerned with. So I went to the said unnamed criminologist who uh, one day will I'll reveal who it is. And I asked them, I, you know, who are Quebec uh, serial killers? Whoa! Oh! oh, oh. Cat fight! Holy shit! Hang on. So I went to the criminologist and I said, uh, so who are Quebec serial killers? And he said, well, you really, you need to, to think I have uh, three of them. There's uh, Serge um, Archambault, there's Augustino Ferreira, and of course, there's uh, William Fife. And um, just so you guys know um, about, uh, well, before we get there, um, you know, um, up until fairly recently, up until, you know, the years of, uh, in Canada, uh, Clifford Olson, um, of course, uh, uh, Paul Bernardo, uh, Homolka, um, um, Robert Picton, you know, serial killing was in, although this wasn't true in, in our, in our culture, in our Canadian culture, it was really considered an American thing, you know, we didn't do things like that here, you know, helter skelter seemed like such a, such a foreign concept and Charles Manson and all that. I mean, I mean, in fact, even, even the song, even the Beatles song, helter skelter is such uh, it's the least Beatle-y song, certainly the least. I mean, Paul McCartney, I mean, the effort is very clear there of him trying to write in, you know, as far away from Paul McCartney as anything. Um, but as I say, I mean, I mean, we all face this problem, whether we're in, um, you know, whether we're in South Africa or whether we're in uh, Scandinavia, whether we're in Cyprus, um, certainly um, Soviet Union, Russia, uh, we have all learned that we have all had these problems of um, killings in a series, uh, people who um, who kill with a sexual motivation uh, one after another. And, uh, you know, this is, uh, I, I think I kind of joked on, on Twitter, you know, this is me caving to the masses and doing my, my serial killer uh, program. It's not really true. I, I mean, I've, I've obviously, I've done it in the past. We're not going to spend a whole lot today on William Fife because I did an entire podcast on that called The Ballad of William Fife. It's in the first season, uh, Who Killed Teresa? It's number 26. And if you want the whole down on the whole rundown on Fife and his operations, where when he was operating in the seventies and eighties um, in the Montreal area, particularly um, north of Montreal in the Laurentian area, uh, the full text is online as as long as as well as the podcast. So as I say, I'm not going to talk too much about Fife. Um, but uh, so there's that. But I have in the past done other uh, episodes. Uh, the you know it's not unnoticed to me that one of the most popular podcasts I did was on uh, the offender Guy Field, uh, and uh, even called it Guy Field, the monster of Levi Levy uh, Guy Field. You know, I didn't call it after the the young girl he murdered. Partly because the girl is four years old. I mean, you can't really give a proper context to a four-year-old victim. So with with other victims, you can certainly talk a little bit about you know who they were and what they're like. I don't know what I was going to say about 
this, you know, four-year-old girl, uh, you know, she liked bar six and I don't know, her, her rub-a-dub dolly and riding her inchworm, you know, there's not, it's not a whole lot to hang there, unfortunately. So, uh, in that, in that case, it, it seemed, um, appropriate to put the focus on the offender Guy Field and certainly the kind of the conundrum of his situation of whether to view Field in a light of, of sympathy or as a, as a monster, which was sort of the, the main focus of that podcast. Um, of course, another podcast about uh, uh, Melanie Decan, um has not had as much um, listenership, uh, although it's it, that could easily have been a podcast about, I mean, I could have named it um, you know the Sir, you know the murderer uh, Michelle Deary, because her offender was caught. I'm sure had I named it after Michelle Deary and the fact that he was a cold, ruthless killer, possibly responsible for other murders, probably would have got listened to a whole lot more. That's you know I don't I don't find fault with that. That's just the nature of the beast. I, I wish focus was more on victims, but it's ne- you know it's never going to be that way. So. Um, so with that, I'd say, uh, and, and I don't know, maybe people just listen to the Geefield episode because they like Alice Cooper, which is the track for that particular episode. I don't know. But um, so today we're going to focus, as I say, on Archambault, uh, Ferreira, and not, as I said, not so much on Fife. I did find a cup, uh, like a, a, an article in the Gazette. Um, that I'd never seen before, and I imagine others as well, called What Made William Fife a Killer? And I've posted the whole thing online. It's it's pretty interesting because it it talks about, uh, he was known at that time as uh, Bill Langlais because he, had, um, he was not yet known as a serial killer, but certainly as an offender. And he had been released, he was on prison release and certainly, uh, you know, he was working in the Laurentian area in a small town and was known to that town as like being an athletics coach and uh, like somewhat, very, you know, very involved in the community and to read people's, uh, you know, opinion of him versus of, you know, who we eventually learned he was, I think is pretty interesting. As I say, I'm not going to, I'm not I'm not going to delve into Fife today, but if you're interested in William Fife, you can go back to the episode 26 of the podcast, or if you've already heard that and you want new information that I find is pretty compelling, you can look at this article online. And uh, the website is uh, theresalore.com, T-H-E-R-E-S-A-A-L-L-O-R-E. So we're going to, we'll start in the order that... Uh, they were caught. So Archambault is caught first uh, in November 92. Um, uh, Agostino uh, Ferreira is, is caught very shortly after that in January 95. And then Fife is caught much, much later. It's not until December 99. So all in the 90s, the three uh, Quebec serial killers that we know of are apprehended Although um, the uh, sort of the track of their crimes is in reverse order, it's known that Fife uh, was, it's documented, he was the earliest uh, active of them all. 
um, starting back as early as 1977. Um, Archambault uh, may have uh, committed uh, unknown uh, uh, killings in the in the late 70s, um, maybe maybe earlier than uh, 79, but it's suspected in 79. And then uh, Agostino Ferreira, his crimes, he's, he, uh, this guy burned bright and fast, and you'll, you'll sort of know why when we get to him. His documented crimes are from uh, 89 to 90, so a very short window. He may have gone a little before that, but I suspect not much before 89. Um and um, I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on these three. Well, I, I, I'm going to spend a whole podcast, but um, I'm less I'm less interested in them as individuals, and, and more in interested in uh, how they inform other things we've talked about because they're not that interesting. Uh, so we should just use what we know. Um, of, of of these affairs for our own purposes. And uh, uh, j- just a word of note, um, uh, as, con- as is the case in Quebec, because there's a lot of similar names, there was another Serge Archambault who, if you're ever researching him, you want to be sure not to confuse him with. There was, a, there was an armed robbery guy in the 70s, also known as Serge Archambault, but he's not our uh, serial killer, Serge Archambault. That's a that's a different guy. Um, and then the you know the other uh, curiosity that I'll point out is that for the most part, from what we know, these guys had an mo. All three of them, where they would, as I say, for the most part, for the most part, they would kill indoors, and. And then when they finished, you know, they'd simply close the door. Um, certainly a more efficient process than the killing and dumping. That, um, you know, that that process involves more effort. And um, I don't know if it's more risk. I, I'd say a different set of risks. Certainly the, the killing indoors poses its own set of risks in, in that... You, you know, if you're found at the residence, you probably have a reason to be at a residence. You might have a history at the residence. Um, and if you're if you're caught, you're caught. You're caught right there uh, in the place where the individual lived uh, um, with the victim. Um, so the, the risk is getting in and getting out on scene. And and all of these guys, uh, you know, Fife was, uh, I think, for a period known as the plumber. His uh, his big mo would he. He would knock on doors and pretend to be a handyman or something like that. Do you need, do you need anything fixed, or your you know your husband said I should come by this afternoon, and you know once he's in, that's that's that. So there's, there's just some context to go on from there, and then from that we're, we're going to start with um, Serge Archambault. Although Serge Archambault may have been active as a sexual predator in Quebec in the in the earlier the late seventies. The first that we we learn of him is in, as I said, November of nineteen ninety two, when he's arrested for the murders of Chantal Briere and Roland Aslan Bocage. 
in the first media filings, it's revealed that Archambault worked as a traveling salesman. And I believe he worked for a company called uh, H. Bellinger Plumbing Limited. There's uh, an ad I found in the Montreal Gazette in September 1990, which lists the position of um, that is open of inside sales representative and asks all interested parties to contact a Mr. Serge Archambault at their offices on De Maisonneuve in Montreal. Now, the fact that he was possibly a plumbing salesman may bear some uh, significance later as we progress with this uh, story. The 36-year-old Archambault, a twice-married father of two, living with his second wife in Saint-Eustache, which is northwest off the island of of Montreal. He's, he's charged with the slayings of Chantal Briere, who was 24. She's found strangled in her house in uh, De Montagne, which is just a little south of where, uh, about maybe 10 minutes south of where uh, Archambault lived in Saint-Astache. And that's late November 92. So he's arrested right after that murder. And you'll you'll find out why in a minute. And uh, the second murder he's charged with is uh, Roland Aslan Bocage, 47 years old. And she's found shot dead in her home in Saint-Calixte, January 6th, 1992, so earlier in the year. And we've heard that name Saint-Calixte many times on this podcast. Uh, I don't think in any way this crime is related to those crimes. It's separate. I don't suspect Archambault in those Saint-Calix crimes we've already uh, talked about. But nevertheless, all you need to know is Saint-Calix is the... It's north of Montreal. It's uh, generally regarded as um, cottage country. And and yes, um, uh, you know, uh, William Fife uh, around the same time was was living close by, uh, maybe maybe an hour away in Saint, in the Saint-Jerome area north of Montreal. After Archambault's arrest, police immediately begin searching for the remains of a missing 30-year-old woman who disappeared from her Verdun apartment in June of 1989. Archambault uh, leads police uh, to a wooded area, so obviously he, he confesses, um, in Saint-Hubert, uh, near the intersections of uh, Moise, uh, Vincent, and uh, Maricourt streets. Saint-Hubert is just adjacent to uh, Longuet. That's Longuet. There, um, they find bones. The police find bones scattered in the woods, and the bones are sent to the medical laboratory for further analysis. Uh, so this this is where it... it gets interesting we start to delve into the 1989 case it's like okay what happened here uh it's 1992 it's three years later why why wasn't he apprehended sooner uh police uh reveal that some police officers with 26 years of experience had quote never seen this type of crime um but the, the police hesitate when they are asked if they consider the crime serial killings and uh, they remark uh, 
they are two killings, possibly three. We consider them multiple murders, remarks the spokesman for the Sarté du Québec, Lucie Bolt. When asked uh, what the difference was, Bolt shrugged um, the number. I don't know. The Gazette... <laughs> Flatfoot. <laughs> the Gazette articles uh, noted that... Um, Quote, serial killings have been defined as multiple murders that are fantasy or ritually driven, end quote. So this is 1992. I mean, we're well past the years of Douglas and Reisler, but still in, in, in Quebec, this is probably fairly, it's not a new thing that was happening. It may be a new thing that Quebec police had keyed into. And um, the Gazette's um, description of of what a, serial killing is um murders that are fantasy or ritually driven is a pretty pretty accurate um description police confirmed to the press that they drew up a psychological profile of the suspect as part of their investigation uh and the gazette notes that uh the technique was pioneered by the US Federal Bureau of Investigation in the 70s and has become known for its use in the tracking of serial killers. And, and I, I, I would somewhat question that. I, I would love to know what they considered uh, um, uh, profiling um, back in that day. So this is 92. We know for a fact in uh, the late 70s with the Suzanne Charbonneau case, um, they didn't do their own profiling uh, that uh, they had to actually send their information to Quantico for the analysis they were beholden to um, U- U.S. investigators. And and further, we know that it wasn't, in, as I've said before, it wasn't until the 2000s that Sartre de Quebec actually trained to uh, investigators on um, behavioral science and uh, serial profiling and uh, were sent to Quantico for the for the training. So so what this profiling consisted of in 92 is um I don't know. I I would imagine it was fairly rudimentary, maybe not, but that's uh, that's just just my guess. I don't I don't know of what value it, it would have held particularly as we're about to see that um it certainly wasn't profiling that cracked the case of Serge Archambault. Um, and, you know, as I say, they play up the amount of detective work it took to crack the case, but the the real break came from some careless actions on Archambault's part. Um, shortly after the strangulation and sexual assault of Chantal Briere in her de Montagne home, Archambault used um, her ATM card to withdraw $300 from a local uh, bonissoir uh, dépanneur corner store. And the surveillance camera at the ATM caught the whole thing on tape, including the store's elevator music, which was playing a uh, a hit by uh, Rock Voisin at the time, Helen, which um, uh, a Laval radio DJ would later testify. He played it approximately 12.58 p.m. on November 26, um, within an hour of the Briere murder. It, neighbors of Archambault um, 
in commenting on the profile article, the initial articles, uh, made mention that Archambault looked like a nice guy, very faithful to his wife. On November 30th, 1992, Serge Archambault is charged with the first-degree murder of all three women. He is immediately ordered to undergo a psychological evaluation at the Pinel Psychiatric Institute, located not far from where Anna Maria Cordina Leva lived in the Montreal's East End. The assessment is to, to determine if Archambault is mentally fit to stand trial. Archambault is charged with uh, Cordina Leva's murder, even though technically her remains have not been recovered. Sûreté de Quebec police are still waiting for the results from the analysis on the bones recovered in St. Hubert. And Montreal police are repeatedly asked whether they questioned Archambault three years earlier in 1989 about Cordina Leva's disappearance. The Quebec police, the, the, the investigating force at the time of the disappearance would have been the Montreal Urban Police. So the, the Montreal police continued to be evasive. Um, it's a file that goes back three years and the investigator who handled the case is on vacation. I can't tell you how many times I've heard that excuse. Uh, the The father of uh, Anna Maria, um, Rosendo Cordina, reveals that in 1989, police told him Archambault had an alibi. They said he had he had been on vacation or something like that. On December first, uh, Montreal police finally confirm that they did, in fact, question Serge uh, Archambault uh, about the disappearance of Anna Maria, but they quickly uh, punt the entire matter to the provincial police, Sarté de Québec. Um, at no time was he treated as a suspect. He was asked some questions. He answered, and that was it says Detective Michel Quintal of the MUC police. In any event, Quintal states the case is now in the hands of the Sarté de Québec. So, you know, wash our hands, no longer our responsibility. You take the whole mess and you take it up with the SQ. The, uh, the family of Cordina Leva were not the only ones sounding the alarm about Serge Archambault, uh, Dr. Paul uh, André Lafleur, the assistant director of the Pinel Psychiatric Institute, comes forward and discloses that as early as 1982, Archambault checked himself into the Pinel Institute and remained there for 30 months after uh, attacking a woman with a crowbar to the face. So apparently in, in, uh, in uh, 
1982, uh, Arshenbo himself recognized that he was a potential danger to society. Back in the days when I was a teenager, before I had status and before I had a pager, you could find the abstract, listening to hip hop, my pops used to say it reminded him of bebop, I said well daddy don't you know that things go in cycles, way the Bobby Brown is just amping like Michael, it's all expected, things are for the looking, if you got the money, the quest is for the booking. On December 12th, 1992, the Pinnell Institute rules that Archambault is mentally fit to stand trial. And police also revealed that the bones they recovered at the St. Hubert wooded area, including a skull, are in fact the remains of Anna Maria Cordina Leva. La Presse reports that after his arrest, police found in his home a list of three houses for sale in the St. Eustache neighborhood where Archambault lived, along with a box of jewelry and underwear not belonging to his wife. Police now begin to investigate Archambault in the unsolved murders of other women, including uh, Louise Bablanca Poupard, raped and stabbed 17 times in 1987 at her home in St. Adèle. Pauline Laplante, sexually assaulted and stabbed in 1989 in Piedmont. Joanne uh, Baudouin, murdered in her Mount Royal home in 1990. And the murders of Danielle Laplante, and Claire Sampson, who were murdered in a boutique in Outremont, also in 1990. At the close of the year, December 31st, 1992, there's a lengthy piece in Le Devoir. Uh, Roland Perrin reveals that the Sarti de Quebec have added to the list of suspected murders the names of... Uh, Marie-Claude Coté, a Brebeuf college student who disappeared from uh, Club Barina in October 1991, and 22-year-old Chantal Brochou, who was strangled in uh, Outremont in September 1992. Uh, I I bring up the French articles, uh, Le Devoir and La Presse, for two reasons. One, I've said it before, in order to get the full context, you need to see what the media was reporting, both in French and English, because they tell different stories. Um, but maybe more importantly, the second reason is uh, I have a French uh, a Quebecois listenership. Um, and in, in many cases, uh, their their English is not book perfect. Um, it's one of the reasons when... Uh, in speaking, I, I try not to use a whole lot of idioms uh, or a whole lot of irony. Uh, it, it gets lost in the translation, although sometimes I can't help myself. Um, um, but to uh, to offset that, um, what I've begun to do is if, if the podcast and the writing is in English, then the source material, uh, for the most part, that I put on the website is going to be in French. So that if somebody who's listening from Quebec doesn't fully get what I'm saying, they can always go to uh, theresaallore.com, t h e r e s a a l l o r e point com, and there you'll find the newspaper articles from uh, from that era that you can read 
to get a, a, a robust understanding that you may not get in, in the telling here. Anyway, off track. Serge Archambault's trial begins on October of 1993. One of the first witnesses is Chantal Briere's husband, Raymond Latour, he breaks down at the sight of articles of clothing belonging to his wife he's asked to identify. He recalls kissing his wife Chantal goodbye at 5.30 a.m. on November 26, 1992, and reminding her that a man interested in buying their home was going to drop by around 10 a.m., Chantal's mother testifies that she spoke to her daughter around 11 a.m. and was told that a man was there with her when she tried calling back at 12.45 p.m. There was no answer. Francine Briere testifies that she found her sister's body around 5 p.m. on the kitchen floor of her home. Chantal was lying on her stomach, naked from the waist down, with her hands tied behind her back. Pathologist Jean Houle testifies that Briere died of asphyxiation from swallowing her tongue. A sock had been shoved in her mouth and was held there by a bra tied around her neck. Her ankles and wrists were tied with electrical cords. The handle of a bathroom plunger had been inserted into Briere's rectum. Uh, And I'm going to say this repeatedly. Uh, Briere did not have to die had Montreal police done their job. Briere did not have to die had Montreal police done their job in the Cordova uh, uh, Leva investigation. Um, had they actually followed up um, properly in, in a proper interrogation of Serge Archambault? They probably, he probably very quickly would have broken. Um, And uh, the two other victims wouldn't have met this horrible fate. Sarté du Québec investigator Michel Tanguay testifies that the Briere home at 62 uh, de la 9e Avenue in De Montagne was a 10 minute drive from where Archambault later used uh, Chantal's ATM card to withdraw the $300 in cash from that local dépanneur. Now, the mention of Michel Tanguay is, is, of course, is very, very interesting to me. He was the lead in the 1999 um, investigation disappearance of Julie Serprenant, the Serprenant case. Uh, In November of this year, we're coming up on the 30th anniversary of that case um and uh, there's a very good um documentary i think you can find it on daily motion on the supranal case 
in which Tange is interviewed, um, uh, if it's still available. And um, as I've mentioned before, Tange was my point of contact in my sister's investigation. He was one of the the initial people that I I met. Um, who he's one of the first guys who really took the reins of things and said, you know, we're going to get this under control. He's one of the few investigators who ever actually apologized for the poor job they did. Um, from from my point of view, from my optics, he's a really good man, and all all signs he's retired now, but all signs point to the fact that Michel Tanguay was an excellent, excellent investigator. I know I'm often throwing shade here. Often I'm I'm continually putting the SQ in in, in a blackout here. Uh, not so with Michel Tanguay, somebody to really who really deserves credit. There are others, but we're going to single him out today. So at the the end of the first week of the Archambault trial, police reveal statements given by Archambault when they first take him into custody late that late November ninety two. Uh, he confessed that he killed an, and mutilated three women to get back at an aunt who sexually molested him as a child. Uh, I, I don't particularly like reading this stuff, but it's it's one of the rare occasions where you get, you know, good insight into an, a serial, serial offender like this, um, particularly a Quebec one who we know so little about. So in, um, in Tange's words, um, I did it because of her, the aunt. I wanted revenge, but I didn't want to do it to my aunt because it would have been too hard on my mother. She did all kinds of things to me. She put her fingers in my rectum. In his confession of the murder of Chantal Briere, Archambault said that on the pretext of wanting to buy the house... He made his way into the home and he hit her in the head from behind with the back of an axe. He then restrained her with electrical cords. And when she regained consciousness, he demanded money, taking $200 and two bank cards from her wallet. I hit her again, pulled down her pants and panties. Then I stuck a bathroom plunger in her rear. Archambault's other victims had knives inserted in their rectums after they were killed, police learned in those 92 interrogations. Unlike the, the, the planned effort of the uh, incalculated effort of the Briere murder, the murder of 47-year-old um, uh, Saint-Calixte resident of Roland, Aslan was uh, appears to be a crime of opportunity. Archambault was driving around the Laurentians when he saw Aslan in the front yard of her home at 400 uh, Monte uh, Mongo, and he asked her for uh, directions and a glass of water. Shades there of True Detective uh, season three that sort of popped in my head when I read that. Once, uh, once inside, um, a, a similar um, scenario unfolded. Um, he tied um, Roland's uh, wrists and ankles with electrical cord. Then he shot her in the back of the head. And after she was dead, Archambault uh, mutilated her body with knives. 
Um, in the case of Anna Maria Cordova Leva Archenbo said that they had worked together in the Point au Tremble uh, area um, and that he was paying her to sleep with him. Uh, when I stopped paying, she called my wife. Um, in June 1989, Archenbo slit her throat, decapitated her, and cut her into pieces. You wouldn't have recognized her, he told police. In uh, late November 1993, almost a year since his arrest, Serge Archambault is found guilty of on, uh, on three counts of first-degree murder um, for all three of the victims. And he's, he's sentenced to a 25-year life sentence without the possibility of parole. Chantal Brier's husband says that Archambault is, quote, uh, incurable and deserves the death penalty. But there is, of course, um, no death penalty in Canada at this time. Superior Court Justice Robert uh, Flaith calls Archambault diabolically perverted, a despicable, manipulative coward of society. So now, now dubbed the Butcher of St. Eustache, police confirm that Archambault is still a suspect in a number of unsolved murders, including the deaths of a half-dozen prostitutes. Dr. Uh, Louis Marissette compares Archambault to Clifford Olson, describing him as a sexually sadistic serial killer. After the trial, it is revealed that Archambault kept a rape kit in his car consisting of knives, a rope, and sometimes a loaded shotgun. His first known intended assault may have been as early as 1979 when he visited a woman in Quebec City with the intention of killing and dismembering her. Instead, he hit her on the head with a hammer then fled in panic when she began screaming. Police also disclosed that Archambault is now being considered a suspect in the 1989 murder and dismemberment of 13-year-old Valerie Delpay. If you recall, we did an episode on uh, Delpay called These Butchers since season two. I think it's uh, episode three. Delpay was cut into pieces, I think put in boxes or garbage bags and left in a, uh, at a, um, you know, trash dumper uh, quarry in Montreal. Um, and, and further, um, police were aware that starting in 1991, uh, Archambault was responsible for a series of break-ins, um, I've lost my place. <laughs> no. um, he was he was responsible for a series of break-ins where he would he would place women's underwear. And yeah, let's let's refocus because this is this is important. Uh, it's good stuff uh, about mo's. Uh, he'd break into women's uh, underwear uh, places, and he'd place women's underwear and lingerie on beds as if they were being worn, and then he'd cut them with a knife. 
the undergarments, sometimes leaving the knife behind, sticking out of the underwear. Um, so that's 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 Serge Archambault, the balladist Serge Archambault, and and um, you know there's not really a whole lot uh, after this in the um, Canadian uh, media about his case. He occasionally comes up for reasons we'll disclose later. Um, it really, um, in all subsequent articles in the in the late '90s and 2000s. It really becomes less about Archambault. It becomes about Kathy Reichs. Uh, right, right around this time, the, the author and um, pathologist Kathy Reichs releases her first uh, novel about Temperance Brennan called um, uh, Deja Dead. Um, and of course, it causes quite a stir because the, her, her series on Brennan are, are so popular. And I, I don't think Quebec had ever, although Reich uh, currently lives in Charlotte, North Carolina, Quebec had never experienced um, this level of interest in, in uh, popularity in a true crime author. Later would come someone like Louise Penny, but they'd never really seen something like this. And, and Reich wrote about this because she actually, she worked on the Archambault case. She testified in the trial. Um, I think it's a bit of a reach when they, they go so far as to say Reich, uh, you know, solved the murder some some articles say, um, um, but, but it all, as I say, all the writing becomes about this. At no time does anybody bother to refocus on the the blunders and the mishandlings um, in the initial questioning of Archambault, and uh, you know, with without a proper investigation, the two other murders never would have hap- happened. Uh, it all becomes about um, Temperance Brennan and Bones and. And things like this. Um, now, on the whole uh, telling of the Archambault um, case, I, I do need to give a shout out again to Christian Gravener from Kulops, Kulopolis. Um, I didn't lift um, my account of Archambault from him, but uh, it was only after I, I kind of wrote the structure of this that I went back and I noticed that in 2012, uh, Christian... Um, wrote an account of Archambault. Uh, it's pretty much, uh, you know, fact for fact, it's identical to mine. Um, although, as I say, I didn't read it until after I, I uh, kind of put this put this down. Uh, I bring that up as a way, as a way of to, to give credit where credit is due. Christian is certainly, although Archambault is, is largely, he's kind of forgotten and there's, there's little out there on him. Um, Christian Gravener certainly documented it um, in 2012. Um, one of the interesting things, though, on his post is that uh, someone named uh, Ariane, claiming to be the daughter of Serge Archambault, wrote the following in a comment to the post. She says, uh, thanks for posting this. I'm Mr. Archambault's daughter, and I'm terrified that he will be let out later this year. He is not a sane man and shouldn't be left out to roam the streets. I haven't had any contact with him in over two decades.
move on to our second <laughs> serial killer. Will our mystery guest enter and sign in, please? Uh, as it turns out, Archambault was, was not responsible for the deaths of Danielle Laplante and Claire Sampson, murdered in that boutique in Outremont, referenced earlier, although he, he may have been uh, responsible for a great deal more that we haven't even suggested yet. But in, in 1995, Agostino Ferreira is charged with these 1990 slayings and the rape of two other women in his East Ontario Street apartment. Ferreira tells Quebec court judge uh, Maurice Johnson that he doesn't need a lawyer and chooses to represent himself, setting up uh, the um, noxious potential for Ferreira to cross-examine his surviving rape victims. Ferreira kidnapped the two women from a boutique on Saint-Denis Street the morning of January 4th, 1995. Keep in mind, we're talking about two different boutiques here. One where two women were murdered and one where two women were kidnapped. Um, So he kidnaps them. He's armed with a handgun and and a stick of dynamite, uh, apparently. And they're taken by taxi to his apartment on Ontario Street near Barrie where they are tied up and sexually assaulted. At um, this apartment, Ferreira told the women he was responsible for the 1990 stabbing deaths of the two women at uh, what is was called Boutique Harlem. Harlem is with two A's on Laurier Avenue in Outremont. Outremont is on the other side of Mount Royal. So it's it's not on the side that tourists all go to and look out over the vista of the Montreal city. It's the other side where the University of Montreal is. That's Outremont. Uh, 34-year-old uh, Claire Sampson and 24-year-old Danielle Laplante were stabbed repeatedly um, in an incident which terrified um, shopkeepers for years. Um and Ferreira was later faced with 17 additional charges stemming from incidents alleged to have occurred in the Montreal clothing boutiques from 1989 to 1991, as I said earlier, a very short window. Um, Ferreira almost didn't stand trial for the two murders, Uh, and the assaults due to the bunglings and mishandlings, again, of the Montreal police and prosecution. don't have time to go too much into that right now, but um, when when the cases eventually did come to trial uh, late in 1995, uh, Ferreira did cross-examine his own rape victims in in a bizarre and unsettling process. Ferreira flanked by two guards in the prison uh, prisoner's box, rambled on with questions such as, uh, <laughs> was, were the words cranberries, did, did the words cranberries mean anything to the women? And had he not committed gestures of love 
rather than malice? Staring straight ahead and answering in a low monotone uh, voice, one of the surviving rape victims described how she and her colleague were abducted by the man. Uh, He was wearing a long black leather coat and he claimed he was suicidal. He showed them an object which he claimed was a bomb and said that the detonator was in a small box attached to his shoulder. And this is just bizarre. Um, forced into this taxi, the women were taken to his apartment on Ontario Street at Barrie, where he then, Ferreira dictates a suicide note. Uh, at one point, he went into a closet and brought out a gun, which he waved at them while he was talking. After taping their ankles and wrists together, he used a carving knife to cut the clothing off their bodies. And starting at about 2 p.m., he sexually assaulted them over a period of about two hours. He injected himself with three syringes he said contained cocaine. And then Ferreira decided to go out and get more. After he left, the the women who were they were no longer restrained. They left the apartment. <laughs> of course, they did. They flagged down a taxi and they went to the nearby police station. And throughout the trial, Ferreira, he'd only refer to himself in the third person, um, testifying of pentagrams, crucifixes, mauve auras, and uh, telekinesis. And this, this is a, a quote from him. Did he restrain you in the shape of a cross, whip you, or place a crown of thorns on your head? I mean, I hate, I mean, this guy is like Looney Tunes. Um, Ferreira stood trial and he's found guilty for assault, rape, kidnapping, confinement, attempted murder, and armed robbery. Before trial commenced um, for the two boutique murders of Samson and Laplante, so that came after the rapes, he surprised everyone and pleaded guilty, saying he recognized his guilt and that he he regretted killing the two clerks. Ferreira was declared a dangerous offender and uh, jailed indefinitely. He's the first person in Quebec to receive the dangerous offender designation. And, uh, you know, what's always puzzled me about uh, Agostino Ferreira is uh, I, I, you know, you, you know the um, technically and the, the profession, professionals will catalog him as a serial killer. I don't quite get it. Um, he killed two people in the same place. I always thought um, serial killer was multiple killings in different places. It, it sounds more like a mass murder, although it's not really a mass. It's only two people. No, doesn't quite, I mean, Again, I'm not a criminologist. I'm not. Some of you um, sleuthies can probably give me the technical d- definition. He'd, but he doesn't. He doesn't fit to me f- um, the profile of a serial killer. Um, you know, you know, normally don't give that designation just on the suspicion that he killed others. To my knowledge, nevertheless, um, I mean, there it is. Um, and, um, you know, I think you need to understand the climate of what was going on at this time. So uh, um, 
you know, it's very odd that the two of them were caught almost within, um, you know, five years of each other and they become serial killer one and two, like in, in Quebec, just like that. And we haven't heard tell of any others since, although come on, I mean, give me a fucking break. Um, there are many more. Um, one of the things that should at least be uh, discussed is, is part of the zeitgeist and culture at this time, the people in Quebec were on edge and not only because they, you know, shop owners were traumatized by these boutique murders and this series of rapes and break-ins by uh, Archambault, but something had happened earlier, a couple of years earlier that really um, caught Montreal and, and, Quebec and Canada, for that matter, gobsmacked, and that's the um, the mass murders of, um, I believe, fifteen men and women, fifteen women um, at uh, Ecole Polytechnique by the offender uh, Mark Lepin. Lepin was a student at the uh, Ecole Polytechnique in uh, in Montreal, just adjacent to the Université de Montreal, in the Outremont. Or adjacent to the Outremont neighborhood, um, and one, um, I believe, late um, November, December, uh, he marched into the school, into a classroom, put the women, asked all the men to leave the classroom, lined the women up, and shot them all. And uh, this, of course, polarized Quebec immediately. Uh, I think the knee-jerk response was that Le Pin was crazy. Um, immediately, um, uh, feminists came out and said, wait a minute, he hated women. Uh, and the debate still hasn't been cleared up to this day on Marc Le Pin and what happened at the École Polytechnique. It would take a whole podcast to get into the details of it. But if you're interested in that, um, uh, Denis Villeneuve... Um, who did the the Blade Runner remake and uh, uh, I'm forgetting a number of other he's 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 doing the Dune remake as well. He's one of my favorite directors. He did a a movie called Polytechnique, which I think you can get on Netflix or Amazon Prime, all shot in black and white. Black and white. Um, it's uh, it's in French, but there's very few words in it. It's primarily visual. And it's really, really good. Again, I digress. I'll rein things back in. Um, just, um, you know, some other thoughts on these uh, these things uh, about who else, you, you know, you could peg them for and kind of summing up Archambault, uh, Ferreira, and Fife. Um, th there's a case from Sherbrooke of um, the murder of... Um, uh, Diane Couture, I believe it's in 1987. She's a massage therapist and, and she's murdered in her home. It sounds a lot like Archambault. I would check William Fife for any Laurentian crimes. Um, I mean, Agostino uh, Ferreira, he just sounds like an idiot to me. I mean, I mean, none of these guys were brainiacs by any means. I think it's, it's a fluke that... Um, Quebec police caught this lucky cluster in the 90s. Um, uh, and then to add to that, what about the Francine da Silva case from 1985 that we did an entire um, podcast on? Um, now, it's very compelling. 
that uh, her murder took place in the Barrie, Ontario Street area where um, Agostino Ferreira um, lived. Um, and that's certainly um, something worth um, provoking further. Uh, the dangerous offender provision in Canada. So it was that was adopted in Canada in 1977. And by 1999, there were 220 dangerous offenders in Canada, but only a handful of them from Quebec. Um, and experts in that era said that that was likely to change. It has. In a, in a profile of two Quebec dangerous offenders at that time, Eric Dupuis uh, and uh, Daniel Coxon, the serial rapist Dupuis was quoted as saying, quote, I was attracted by all of the big crimes of a sexual nature. Paul Bernardo, Ferreira, Archambault, they allowed me to reactivate my fantasies. I found that exciting. Dupuis wasn't caught. He, he turned himself in to the Pinnell Institute when he started having fantasies of about murdering 12-year-old girls. And it's uh, himself, he himself suggested he should receive the dangerous offender designation because he felt he posed a significant risk to society. So in, in theory, um, the dangerous offender label is supposed to mean that an offender will never be let out of prison, but that isn't really true. Um, of the... 220 categorized as such in 1990, 10 have been set free for good, although, of course, they have been subject to parole restrictions on their freedoms. going to leave you with one case I think I should mention because uh, I doubt anyone has heard of it. I think it's been forgotten and the MO sounds very much to me like Serge Archambault. The battered body of 19-year-old Linda Flood was found on Mount Royal in May uh, 1989. Her parents last saw her on March 7th when she came to their Saint-Sauveur home and shot some pool for her 19th birthday. She called her mother on April 15th, but all she said was, Hi, Mom, before the phone went dead. Linda was found on uh, May 7th. Her face was so badly disfigured, it took uh, until August to positively identify her through dental records and a distinctive horseshoe-shaped ring that she wore on her uh, on her finger. Police believed initially that Linda was murdered elsewhere, then taken to the spot on Mount Royal. Um, 
a trail uh, of dropped items, a cigarette, a shoe, uh, a comb, led police to believe that the offender wanted her to be found um, and that possibly it was someone that Linda knew. Um, Linda was, quote, very, uh, a little flirty, um, this according to her stepfather, Ronald McDowell. Uh, the boyfriends were always, uh, weren't always the cream of society. So, again, initially police said that Linda was not raped, though police said the offender tried to make it look that way. Uh, she was naked from the waist down, but was beaten and murdered, not sexually assaulted. A stocking had been stuffed in her mouth. A year after her unsolved uh, murder was still unsolved, police changed the story. They now said that Linda had choked to death on the pantyhose after being raped and beaten about the head, possibly with a rock. The assailant um, stuffed the undergarments in her mouth to um, silence her. Uh, Police believe now, at this time a year later, that Linda was dragged into the bushes on Mount Royal from an an automobile. Um, And I I know there's differences. I mean, I went to great pains to uh, stress the killings indoors. This is an outdoor dump. Um, There is now a rape, Archambault, from what we know of, from what we know of only three victims did not rape those victims. Um, he later expressed that um, he, uh, he used the event to, for arousal later. So he was not interested in the sexual assault at the point of aggression and violence. Um, it was later that he would relive the experience and fantasize about it. And that's where, the sexual uh, gratification came in. Um, I don't know if it's related or not, but um, I mean, I will say this. I don't think anyone has heard of the case of um, Linda Flood. This is Who Killed Teresa? And I'm your host, John Allure. Um, I will... uh, you know, leave you with, um, I guess, some uh, some some thoughts on things. Um, uh, just starting with this is kind of a new thing. The comment on the music, the music today um, is a tribe called Quest. Um, their second album, the the two 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 tracks from the Low End Theory, uh, and I guess I chose I chose that. Um, um, you know, about the time these events were occurred, 89 to 92, hip-hop was really breaking, right? Starting with the like acts like the Jungle Bro- Brothers, who then influenced De La Soul, influenced um, Tribe Called Quest. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a hip-hop fan. And when I say I'm a hip-hop fan, I'm a fan of the Jungle Brothers, De La Soul, and <laughs> a Tribe Called Quest, and that's about it. Uh, particularly their sophomore efforts. I mean, often you say that the second record is is tanks, you know, and you think of this in terms of like, um, uh, you know, Boston 2 is not as good as Boston 1. Um, 
Frampton, I, I'm in you is not as good as, as Frampton comes alive. It's sophomore in terms of success. I mean, the same with the uh, Fleetwood Mac's rumors is great. Tusk, meh, not so much. Uh, I always thought that the sophomore albums by these guys were the better ones. The low end theory. Um, De La Soul is dead, which is, um, it doesn't have the hits of the first of Three Feet High and Rising. Um, but it is definitely a a concept uh, album right up there with Rush's uh, 2112. And um, I wouldn't normally be a hip-hop fan. I'm not trying to sound all fly and cool. Um, but I got into hip-hop uh, through jazz, really. I'm, I'm, I, I don't listen to the music I play on this podcast. Yeah, your mind? <laughs> God, no. I, I mostly listen to, to jazz Um and the period I like is um, 70s, particularly late 70s. Like, um, I love the later um, Miles Davis albums, uh, Fide Kilimanjaro, Nefertiti, both of which the bassist Ron Carter played on. And and then uh, Q-Tip enlisted Ron Carter to play on the Low End Theory. That's where you hear all the, the bass in those tracks. Doom, 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 doom. That, that's all Ron Carter. And, um, and when I heard this, I was like, that's pretty flippant cool. And, um, you know, 89 to 92 was a really kind of crazy fractured time. Um, and, um, and, and hip hop can be a really crazy fractured music that takes all these pieces and influences and, puts them all together so that's that's really why um why i use that plus it's it's very very much an an american influence uh right there's nothing more uh there's nothing more american than hip-hop we talked initially about an american uh phenomena such as serial killing or, or so we thought um i think of the the, the writer gerald early and his quote that the, you know in 200 years the only thing america will be remembered for is um Baseball, jazz, and the Constitution, uh, and, and I would throw hip hop right in there because I think early hip hop sounds as good as any jazz recording by Miles Davis or um, Thelonious Monk or uh, Charlie Mingus. Um, and, and the other thing I threw in here uh, was a bit of um, David uh, Bowie, uh, his soundtrack to the uh, the I think it was a BBC miniseries. Um, called the Buddha of Suburbia, based on um, Hanif uh, Karishi's debut, I think it's his debut novel. Um, and um, the two tracks, The Mysteries and uh, Ian Fish, UK Air, which is an anagram, if you figure it out. Bowie's always playing with stuff. I th- I think... Buddha of Suburbia, the soundtrack, is largely forgotten. I, I think in the post-Let's Dance era, which clearly was David Bowie's um, apex of popularity, it is the best thing he did, with the with the exception of Black Star, which is the penultimate exclamation point. Greatest. One of his greatest works, but anyway, I digress. That's that's the reason um, for that music, uh, hip hop. Drake, meh. I, I don't. I, all, all I know is Drake is a guy who 
um, as a cheerleader for basketball. Um, I want to, um, you know, I'm really bad at housekeeping things, but I, I, I do, I, I, I should give a, a shout out to the listeners because I, I am somewhat, not somewhat, completely in awe of and grateful to who, um, you know, who listens. Uh, for a while there, um, Cape Town, uh, South Africa was just going crazy with this. Uh, I, and I know nothing about South Africa, uh, except what I would embarrass myself. I know what I've seen in movies. The same with Australia. I, I'm an embarrassment. I, you know, I know your popular music and your popular movie stars, and that's it. But, uh, <laughs> um, but, but no, I'm really grateful. I mean, for this week, the listeners are, it's, you're a strange lot, Red Deer in Canada, Farnham, UK, uh, Portland, Oregon, Pamplona, Spain, Hudiksvall, Sweden. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Uh, right. Louisville, Kentucky, Montreal. Um, thanks for coming in, Montreal. Mississauga, Ontario, Los Angeles, California. Telford, uh, United Kingdom. Um, and further thanks down the line to Glasgow, Auckland, Oslo, Copenhagen, um, Berkeley, California, Dublin, Ireland. I mean, this is just great. I, I'm I'm so grateful that, that people people listen and um, spend some time with the message. Um, so now I'm I'm well over the one minute mark. So I'm going to wrap things up quickly here. Um, follow me on Twitter at. Uh, Teresa Allure at T H E R E S A A L L O R E and share the content. I always uh, appreciate that if you can forward something or repost it, uh, particularly if it's a podcast. Um, and there's a, a Facebook page, Who Killed Teresa the Podcast. Um, I, the benefit of that is I'll post additional information, pictures, and thoughts, and, and then a lot of goofy things. I'm kind of finding my, my goofy bone here. In the third year, feel a little more comfortable with that, um, expressing uh, that side of me, which is a little guarded initially, and um, and I should express it because my sister Teresa, who is an unsolved murder, 19 years old, died in 1978, was a very funny, goofy person. It would be a second crime to deny you that uh, my bon vivant nature. Uh, <laughs> Often it's corny and probably it's, often it's not funny at all. Uh, what, what can you do? <clears throat> anyway, I'm bugging out. I'm checking out. Uh, I hope you enjoyed this um, this program. Uh, first for June. We'll come back, I, I think, with uh, at, at least two more in June. Uh, and there's two I've already got planned for July. This has been... Who Killed Teresa? I'm your host, John Allure. Life isn't fair. Justice is blind and dysfunctional. Some cops aren't smart and dedicated, like on television. Have yourselves a great, great
We did it again. Verizon was just named America's most reliable network by Root Metrics for the 16th time in a row, proving once again that nobody builds networks like Verizon builds networks. That's why we're building 5G right. That's why there's only one best network Verizon. Best and most reliable based on Root Metrics reports from second half 2013 to first half 2021 of three operators on all network types combined, not specific to 5G networks.
True Crime on A&E, with groundbreaking original shows like The First 48, Cold Case Files, Accused, Guilty or Innocent, and American Justice. No one brings you closer. Groundbreaking True Crime, every Thursday and Friday on A&E.